Hi, my name is Robert McMahon. I'm the Connection Director here at Covenant Church, and I'm thrilled that you're listening. If you're checking us out for the first time, welcome. We're so glad that you're here, and I'd like to take this chance to invite you to let us know that you're tuning in today. We'd love nothing more than to help you start building meaningful relationships and to join you on the journey of faith. Just go to bgcovenant.org connect and let us know how we can be in touch. With that said, let's dive in and listen together to this week's message. I think if we need to figure out the difference between Brett and Nick, we just see who could bench press me, because I think one could and one might not be able to. Um, I'm excited for uh, what we're digging into today. We're going to just keep right on moving, and we're walking with Jesus every single week, and we're on this journey with Jesus as he walks from uh, this area where he was living and ministering around the Sea of Galilee, and he makes his way uh, down through an area called Samaria to his eventual destination in Jerusalem, where he will be crucified. And this Samaritan land is a land of hostility and division. And it is the perfect land for us to be walking with Jesus through as we understand what that means for us as we walk through our own um, sometimes hostile, hostile, sometimes divided land. And so today we pick up the story and Jesus is uh, with his friends, his disciples, and a large crowd is going to gather. Jesus is going to take a sidebar in a sense and go, look, there's thousands here. Let me tell you guys something. And as he does that, we need to lean in close because we're those you guys in the story So in Luke chapter 12, we begin to read, and it says, In the meantime, when so many thousands of people had gathered together that they were trampling one another, Jesus, he began to say to his disciples first and aside, he says, Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Nothing is covered up that won't be revealed or hidden that won't be known. Therefore, whatever you've said in the dark shall be heard in the light, and what you've whispered in private rooms shall be proclaimed on the housetops. So I tell you, my friends, I tell you, Don't fear those who can kill your body and after have nothing more they can do. But I will warn you who to fear. Fear him who after he has killed has authority to cast into hell. So don't fear man, but fear God. Yes, I tell you, fear him. And he continues and Jesus says, are not five sparrows sold for two pennies and and not one of them is forgotten before God? Hmm. Why, even the hairs on your head are all numbered. So fear not, you are more valuable than many sparrows. And I tell you, everyone who acknowledges me before men, the Son of Man will acknowledge before the angels of God, but the one who denies me before men will be denied before God. And everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but the one who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. And when they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, don't be anxious about how you defend yourself or what you say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. So a large crowd goes up and is is climbing in to follow Jesus as he makes his way. And Jesus has this, this moment with his friends to say, hey, be really careful of the leaven of the Pharisees. Leaven is another word for yeast. So be aware of the leaven of the Pharisees, of the yeast of the Pharisees, or we would say of the, the puffery of the Pharisees. Yeast is the thing that makes bread puff. It's the, the beautiful loaf of bread you imagine in your mind's eyes. You think of a, a loaf of bread baking in the oven, and it, it puffs up, and it has that kind of beautiful springiness to it. And the opposite of that, unleavened bread is like a tortilla, which no matter how much heat you add, it kind of will always deflate back to its flat self. And so what Jesus is pointing out is the Pharisees were known for their very puffery in public. They were known for their public acts. Everything that the Pharisees were worried about was an externality. They were worried about external things, good deeds done in public, religious acts done in public, offerings done in public. 
And, and what we need to understand before we start going, oh, those Pharisees, we need to go, we're kind of all Pharisees from time to time. I've told this story before, but I would like to confess it again, that when I vacuum for my wife, my wife leaves, I have to be gone for a couple hours, I'll see you in a little bit, and I get my like husband of the year hat on and I go, I'm really going to win some points today. I'm like, I'm going to clean the house. And so part of that is vacuuming. Now, it's important when you vacuum to get full credit for it, if you're me. And so what I do, I turn into someone from Cirque du Soleil, and after I do the vacuuming of the living room, I then have like a series of ribbons and ropes and things, and I climb out of the room without ever making a footprint on the perfect vacuum lines. Why? Well, she's going to need to see those perfect vacuum lines when she comes home so I can get full credit for having vacuumed. If, if I vacuum and it's clean and she doesn't know it, people just walk all over it, what good is that? I need all the credit I can get. And so children are not allowed in that room. The dog, nobody's in the room. The room's got like yellow caution tape around it because that room has to stay perfectly vacuumed so that I get full credit. How pharisaical. But it's what I do. It's short of the tape. I do the ropes, but not the tape. Everybody has these things in, in, inside of us. We all have these places in our lives where we whether we want to admit it or not, we kind of like to get credit for certain parts of life. We kind of like to be seen doing the right thing. Virtue signaling is a thing in our world. You can Google virtue signaling and just see what that's doing in 2020. It's a, it's a thing we're all kind of active in going, how do, we, how do we do the outside thing so the world can see me? So the reality is if you need credit for a good deed done or if you have that something inside of you that really kind of wants to be seen when you're in the right, there's some Pharisee in you. There's some puffery in you. So Jesus shows up and says, beware of that sort of living. Be care of that, beware of that external living that says, I need other people to see me doing my thing. Think of the best meals you've ever had out. I was thinking about this recently, and there's two that came to mind for me, and, and one's pretty recent, one's a little further back, but I was thinking of these two separate meals that I would say are among the best meals I've ever had. One was uh, Mabel's in Cleveland, Mabel's Barbecue in Cleveland. Mabel's is on East 4th Street in a really like chic area and it's owned by a celebrity chef and it's named after his dog and they have this rib that the newspaper described in Cleveland as the Fred Flintstone rib. It's a beef rib. That's, that's their prize attraction. If you show up, they only make so many and you can't get it before a certain time and then they run out and you're just too bad. A beef rib, not ribs, rib. It's $40 for the rib. And they bring out this rib, and there might as well be trumpets playing because it's on this platter, and it's like a triangle of perfectly glistening goodness. And they put it in front of you, and my family ate of it, and there was extra, like we collected 12 baskets full of, of rib and took it home. No, that, the last part didn't happen. But it was incredible. It was like, this is the greatest rib ever, and it's the best barbecue ever. And I'm from Texas, and I'm not supposed to like your northern barbecue, but sorry, Texas, we can saw you off of the map and push you into the ocean because this is better. They've done it. The rib is the best thing I've ever eaten in my life. And at 40 bucks for a rib, it's kind of cool to be seen there. This is where you want to take a selfie out in front, like, look, I had the rib. Look what I did. I, I could afford to be here. This is kind of a good place to, okay, no one's sitting in here that doesn't belong in here. And that, that's, there's a sort of a pharisaical quality if you want it to be in there. That's one of the best meals I've ever had. It was really good. One, the other best meal I've, I would say I had is from a place called Anna's. I call it Anna's because Anna is the woman who cooks the food, but Anna's doesn't have a name because it's not really a restaurant. It's not actually even a place. Anna is this woman in uh, this really pretty derelict park in central Johannesburg who sets up a propane tank and a hubcap, pours some oil in it, and makes chicken in the park. And so we call it Anna's. Hey, you want to go to Anna's? And people are like, oh, where's that? And you go, well, you step over this drug addict and through the homeless camp, and then you can get to Anna. And 
for not $40, but for 14 rand, which depending on the exchange rate of the day is either 90 cents or $1.20, she will give you two pieces of chicken expertly cooked and seasoned with a side of porridge in a styrofoam clamshell container that may or may not have been reused from a previous meal. Anna's is potentially the best meal I've ever had. Anna's is the kind of place you take visiting missionaries to and you go, hey, you have to try this. And when you take them there, they lock the doors and they say, we're not getting out. What is happening? And you say, it is worth your life to try this chicken. Now, Anna's is not the kind of place you want to take a selfie in. It's the kind of place you want to hide your valuables in. It's not the kind of place a Pharisee would want to be seen because there's no social capital in going to Anna's. Here's the point. I don't think Jesus cares where you eat dinner. Jesus asks you if it's delicious. And what we get caught up in in this pharisaical mindset, when we get that puffery in us, either of the two places I just described are liable to be the places that we can puff ourselves up about. Because Mabel's is a really cool place, and it's really hard to get into sometimes, and it has only a limited number of these ribs. And so if I had one, I must be somebody exclusive and important, and it makes me feel like I'm somebody. That's the whole experience. That's what it's about. I can puff myself up. At the same time, Anna's is the exact same experience, only reversed, that I can say, look how cool I am that I eat in the slums and I'm not afraid of these things. And this is food you wouldn't even try because it's so dangerous. And look how it's so cheap. How, what a great find on my part. And I can puff myself up there too. To which Jesus would go, I don't actually care. Is it delicious? And so, so much of our lives, we spend our lives trying to chase the thing that uh, impresses the people around us, to chase the thing that impresses our friends, our neighbors, the, the thing that makes us feel more important. And what Jesus is really after is what's the heart of it, though? Like, was it good? And you go, yeah, it was really good, Jesus. And he goes, cool. Can I have some? As opposed to the opposite of that, which is going, is it good? And you go, no, but my friends really thought I was cool for going. And Jesus would go, maybe we should go somewhere else. See, he's not mad at either idea. We have to be careful because in all ideas, there's the invitation to this puffery that he talks about, this leavened yeastiness that the the Pharisees show off. Jesus praises Mary in the scripture when she pours thousands of dollars of perfume on his feet. Thousands of dollars of perfume. She pours it on his feet and wipes it with her hair. He praises her. At the same time, he turns around and shames the Pharisees for their excesses. So what is it, Jesus? Is it like, should we be frugal or should we be, what, which one? And he goes, is it delicious? It's about the heart. So when we talk about leaven and what that is in our lives, when we talk about this yeast and this puffery in our own lives, we have to say, what is it and how does it affect us? And what Jesus is doing is using yeast as a metaphor for sin. Plain and simple, he's using yeast as a metaphor for sin. And so there's three things we're going to see about it. First, it's hidden. Second, it spreads. And third, it destroys. So first, it's hidden. Sin is hidden. Just like yeast, it is hidden. Once you put the yeast into the dough and you start to knead it, the yeast disappears real quick and you don't actually even know it's there, but it's working. Jesus is reminding us that sin is an internal thing that you probably can't even see it. There's a heart and a motive in there, but you can't see it. Punches, you can see. Pride is harder to perceive. And once you're kneading that dough, if you put your yeast, if you go to the store and buy active yeast, it comes in a tiny little packet. You open the packet and there's like some, looks like little granules of something that would, maybe if you put it on your back porch, it would kill the ants that keep trying to get into your house. It's like tiny little granules. And as you mix it in, as you knead it in, it disappears. And if you got two professional bakers and you handed them bread that had been kneaded through already and one had yeast and the other did not, those two bakers would not be able to decide which was which because once it's in there, it's hidden. 
When you're driving, we call these things blind spots. Blind spots. You know, you've ever had this experience, you've driven long enough, you've had this experience where you've been driving and, and you look in the mirrors, you've checked all the mirrors that you have and then you begin to make your way over, you have your blinker on and you start gliding over on the highway only to have like a semi-truck blare the horn at you and you do the head check at that point as you swerve back into your lane and you realize that you just about ended your family's life because you didn't do the head check, you didn't check your blind spot. And how did something that long get in my blind spot? How could I not see that this thing was here? That's why they call it a blind spot. So the question is, in our lives, do we have these blind spots? Do we have these areas that we're not even totally aware of that if we really stop and think about it are kind of being infected by this, this leaven, this puffery? Sin is hidden. Second thing is sin spreads. Sin spreads, and it doesn't take much to spread. Yeast, as I just said, it's these tiny little granules. It doesn't take much yeast to puff up a loaf. And even then, as, as a baker would take a bit of this yeasty bread that's been prepared and ready to bake, he'll pull a little knob off. She'll pull a little piece off and that you can refrigerate that and save it till the next day. And when you add fresh dough to it, this already leavened bread will infect the other. And as you knead it together, it will then puff as well. If you unpack that, here's what I think I'm trying to say. This puffery of sin does not stay quietly in the corner where we want it to stay. Whether that's an issue in your life, a habit that you've been trying to kick, it's something that, that you wish your neighbor didn't know about, you, you're, you're glad it's staying hidden. The reality is, though it is hidden, it will not stay hidden because sin spreads and this leaven will spread throughout your life. Sometimes we say things like, it's really not that big of a deal. And then what we see over and over and over again is it will become one. That just a little bit of yeast working through that dough eventually makes it through the whole thing. And it spreads if you feed it. Here's the thing. A lot of this has to be fed a little bit. And so when we're not totally aware, when it's a blind spot for us, we don't even know, we begin feeding it. We see this most clearly when we talk about resentment with people. You'll have two people, it's their husband, wife, their sisters, their old neighbors, they resent each other. And they don't even sometimes remember why. But over the years, as you feed resentment, you have to replay certain episodes that, that hold up a narrative of resentment. And over time, if you replay those narratives over and over, you replay those episodes over and over, what you get is as you walk into Thanksgiving year, this year, you see that uncle or that cousin or that sister or that whoever, and you go, ah, oh, them. What is it you don't like about them? Well, you see, 17 years ago when we were doing the wishbone, they, you know, and it's like, what, what? How did this happen? Well, it was a seed of resentment so long ago, but I fed it. And over time, it began to infect our whole relationship. And now there's a point at which resentment turned into contempt and contempt turned into, I just would rather not deal with that person. When the sweetness is gone, when it's eaten all the sugar out of the bread, when the yeast makes its way all the way through, it feeds on the sugars and the bread, and when the sugar is gone, you get what's called sourdough. How? What eats all the sugar? There's a point which sourdough goes too far over where it's no longer delicious sourdough. It actually becomes inedible because there's so much sour in it. It actually breaks the bread down at its very core. It becomes inedible. It's destroyed. It's got nothing left to eat, so it begins to eat on itself. And this is third and finally how sin destroys. 
Sourdough works by the yeast consuming all the sugars. The same idea is true for us as we have sin in our life and it begins to slowly consume the sweetness of our life. What we don't recognize in that blind spot is it is taking over in places we never intended. This happens in the world of fantasy. Children in the room, so you read between all the lines. When you read that fantasy novel, you click that video, whatever it is that that you find in the world of fantasy, and this can be, just so you know, this can be in whole other uh, realms. It doesn't just be the one realm that you think I'm pointing to, although that realm is real. Fantasy in general blinds us to reality. It doesn't make fantasy wrong. It means that fantasy that isn't married to reality begins to make us a little bit weird, a little bit uh, screwed, if I'd be honest. If we think that we're action heroes because we live in a world of fantasy and we try to take on the world as action heroes, it's not going to go real well for us. The same is true as if we live in a world of uh, fantasy of a different type, of of fleshly fantasy, that's not going to go very well either. Because as you feed that, as you read that, as you click that, it provides a burst. There's a reason we like fantasy. Whether it's Star Wars or sports or anything else, there's a reason we like it. It feeds something in us. There's an adrenaline rush. There's a dopamine hit. There's a thing that happens, and we go, that felt good. I want to do that again. And so we feed it. We return to it. We watch it again. We click it again. We entertain it again. And then that fantasy begins to spread in our lives. And the problem is that no one can live up to fantasy in our lives. And so as it spreads, as it grows, as we feed it, it begins to steal the sweetness of our relationships. This applies to current relationships and future relationships. If there are married people in the room, your spouse cannot live up to a fantasy, whatever that is. Your spouse doesn't live up to the, the fantasy. That's not reality. Divorce from reality, it's, they can't live there. Single people, if your sights have been set on fantasy, the search for a spouse will be endless frustration because that person isn't real. So that handsome doctor from Grey's Anatomy, although pretty heroic, is also being written by somebody in a room somewhere in New York City, and it's not real. It's an act. It's not real. And you wouldn't hold somebody up to that standard. We were in the hospital a little bit this summer, and and none of the doctors had, I I don't know, maybe Steph Somm didn't want to tell me because it wasn't visiting hours, but I didn't see any handsome doctors come in like that, rippling abs and Gorgeous smiles, and no one had that kind of bedside manner either. No one was that articulate. It's like you needed a decoder to figure out what these people were saying. And I'm like, this is not what they sound like on television. In the fantasy, it ruined my reality because they were not the same thing. The same is true in the fleshly world, that if we find ourselves fixating on fantasy, then we will never, ever, ever find sweetness in the relationship because they cannot match up. And what happens is that's where we find that sin begins to destroy. When sin has gotten into so deeply into us that that it begins to steal the sweetness out of the reality of life. Well, sin hides and sin spreads, and then it will destroy as the small and secret prides and the small and secret blind spots and the small and secret pharisaical puffery pieces of us begin to take over. And some people go, ah, that's a small thing. That seems like a small thing. You're making a big deal out of a small thing. The Apostle Paul tells the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, he says this, your flip and callous arrogance in these things bothers me. You pass it off as a small thing. But it's anything but that. Yeast, too, is a small thing, but it works its way through the whole batch of bread dough pretty fast. So get rid of the yeast. Paul echoes Jesus and says, hey, the puffery is more dangerous than you think. 
We look back at Luke 11 where we've been walking with Jesus and there was a point where the Pharisees wanted a sign. Give us a sign, Jesus. And he said, I'm not doing that. You're after puffery. And then the Pharisees were upset that he didn't wash. He didn't wash his hands before they had the meal. And he goes, you guys are unwashed gravestones. Forget it. You're after puffery. What Jesus is continually telling the Pharisees is this is some pride in you that wants to see the outside of the cup clean, but you're not worried about what's on the inside. You have no integrity because you're so worried about the outside that makes sure everybody thinks everything looks good and you neglect the inside and, and you can't live like that. Pass it off as a small thing, but that puffery, that drive for self-importance and self-reliance and self-satisfaction, this is endemic of us and it is not new. In Genesis, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, the enemy, the darkness, says you should probably eat of that because then you'll be like God's. That's what our ultimate drive is about when, when sin takes hold. It's driving us to, hey, you could be like a God. And we live in a God-obsessed culture, not capital G, God in heaven. We live in a lowercase g, God-obsessed culture where our, our athlete heroes are gods and our celebrity heroes are gods. And, and people, we just create gods everywhere. Our political heroes become gods. And all of it is, is a falsehood and a fantasy that we create to try to prop something up. And then we zoom into our own hearts and our own local context, and if we're honest, we kind of want that for ourselves. We kind of want to feel important like that. We want people to see us like that. We want to be looked at like we matter. So the question says, why don't you come to church in your sweatpants and stained t-shirt? A couple hundred people online that are laughing at us right now and high-fiving it because they are in their sweatpants and their stained t-shirts. Why don't you go out in public in this? Because there's something you want to showcase to the world that isn't going to be, I am a slovenly mess. You're trying to show something. And guess what? That's not actually wrong. So don't mishear me. Putting on decent clothing and showering on occasion is a great idea. The idea is that it should match the inside. The inside should match the outside. And so if I stand up here in my sweatpants and stained t-shirt, that might not represent the effort and time I put into creating something today that I hope would push us closer to Jesus. And so what I want to do is get rid of that distraction. And so I put on a shirt that I ironed and some jeans, the same jeans I wear every week. Newsflash, I wear the same jeans every week. Just take a look. I've never changed jeans. And when these run out, I buy the exact same pair of jeans from the exact same store and I wear them for a year and a half and then they wear out and I do it all over again, just so you know. Okay, back to the sermon. This is why I get these clothes on because I want the inside of what I've done to be represented by the outside. And those things are at level. They are integrated. They have integrity. Now, if I put on a three-piece suit and I talked in a British accent, there's something wrong with that. The same thing is true for each of us as we make our way through life. It's not a bad thing to take care of the outside of the cup in Jesus' world. It's not a bad thing to be who you are and to present something to the world. The challenge is making sure that the outside presentation and the inside reality match. That's what Jesus is saying is hypocrisy. If those things don't match, then you're hypocrites. But if they do match, great. This pharisaical puffery is manipulating perception without the heart reality to match. We have this antiviral spray that our ushers will come through the church in between services these days, and they spray this spray all throughout the place. It smells like ginger. Every single Sunday, I want Korean food because I smell ginger, and I get all these little sensors in my brain going, that's delicious, you should eat that. And it's just a viral spray and you shouldn't, don't spray the spray in your mouth. Why does it smell like ginger? Does antiviral spray naturally smell like ginger? No. 
they've flavored the spray so that you know when you walk in, you get the sensation that something has been done, and that triggers a thing in your mind that goes, they've cleaned the place. Is the spray wrong for having a ginger smell? No, it's actually now integrated because we have cleaned the the facility. We have a spray, the antiviral spray. It is a touch safer than it was before. And so we would like you to know the reality is matched by the perception. So it has a ginger smell. This is okay. On the other end of the spectrum, have you uh, been on an airplane lately? No, pandemic, sorry. Remember when you used to get on airplanes and you'd have to go through security? TSA, let's put the TSA on the screen so we can give these people some love. This is what you want to see. Look at these people. They're working hard. They make sure that your laptop is in a separate box and that your belt is off and that your change is out. They're doing their work. This is not their fault. But let me tell you some bad news. The most pharisaical thing we have in the United States at the moment is still the TSA. In 2017, they did these studies. They were basically stress tests where um, they were seeing the efficacy of what was happening at the, the security gate. And what they found was the TSA missed, missed, capital M, missed between 70, 70, and 95% of weapons that were passed through in these tests. If 100 weapons were put through the x-ray machine, between 70 and 95 of them were picked up by their person on the other end as they went on to their flight. Does this make you feel safer? But men, they go through a whole lot of theater to make you feel like they're doing some stuff, right? You got to take your shoes off and you got to put them in a separate bin now and you got to take the laptop out of the sleeve into the other bin. Oh, what is that? Is that a reading device? That's another one. iPod, another one. Headphones, wrap them around your ear balls. All these new rules every time you go in, they're like, I got a new thing every time. What about my belt? You can keep that on. What about your shoes? Maybe today. And they just have arbitrary rules. And we go through, and then we do that thing where we stand, and, and then you feel like maybe, okay, I'm good. It did its little skin naked of me under my clothes, and everybody's happy. All the while, the AK-47 is just rolling through the x-ray belt, and nobody seems to care. This is called security theater. It's puffery. It's intended to give you a perception of safety when you're in the airport, even though realistically, unfortunately, we're missing a lot. And so it's puffery. It doesn't match up with reality. Why does this matter? If this is our life, if this is represented in how we live, we set ourselves up for, instead of a life of flourishing that we were designed for, we set ourselves up for a life of floundering. So the question becomes, what do we do and where do we look for hope? This is a big problem. We need a big solution. Jesus, in Luke chapter 12, verse 6, remember he said this. He said, are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? And not one of them is forgotten before God. So even the hairs on your head are numbered. Fear not. You are more valuable than many sparrows. We need a big solution. And Jesus brings out a sparrow. So let's talk about sparrows for a minute. Sparrows are widespread. Sparrows are among the most common birds on earth. They're adorable, although they are brown and gray and small, and generously they are called drab, right? Nobody's writing books about the beauty of a sparrow. It's just a sparrow. Jesus says at the bargain bin of the local bird store, he can buy five of these sparrows for two pennies. He could have said... Listen, your father loves the golden cheek warbler, which is this rare and beautiful songbird. He could have said, the father loves cardinals and blue jays, who are these beautiful expressions of his creative genius. But what Jesus said instead was, consider the sparrows. Consider the most common 
drab, unsightly, just whatever kind of bird, whatever. And consider that he finds them precious enough that he knows everything there is to know about each and every one of them. Somehow they're still precious to him. And Jesus says, do you think if God doesn't forget a single one of them that he isn't concerned with you? Jesus is showing us the antidote to puffery is not to like fight our way into greater humility. The antidote to this pharisaical pride and puffery is to put our eyes back on God. The path beyond sinful selfless, uh, selfishness, the path beyond pride and puffery is grounded in the truth that God doesn't forget you, that God sees you, and that God loves you. I wish it was a really big aha moment you could apply to your life and go, now do these eight things and you will be done with all of the puffery and the sin and the secret things in your life. What Jesus says is consider the sparrow. That pride and puffery are born of a desperation to be noticed. And Christ-like humility is born of knowing that God sees you right where you are that pride and puffery are born of a desperation to be valued and that humility is born knowing that God finds you precious right where you are. Whether you're one of 100 or one of 20,000 or one of 7 billion people, that even if you feel common, God looks at you and says you are precious. That pride and puffery are born of desperation to be loved and humility is then born knowing that God's love for you cannot be contained, much less comprehended. That God's love for you compelled him to send Jesus to be killed on our behalf, to be, to be put on a cross. And man, we say that so often. We say that every Sunday that it, if we're not careful, we just miss it. It's just, oh yeah, Jesus and the cross thing again. We're, gonna, we're ending with the cross thing again? We do that every week. God says the antidote to all of this pain that puffery brings, all of this pride and this sin life that seems to take over and destroy the things we love, the antidote to that is to look back at the cross and go, that is a symbol not of somebody being crushed, that's a symbol of somebody exhibiting love. And the love was for you, not for you plural, it was for you personally, you singular, God loved you the one in seven billion sparrow, God loved you and knows you and he sees you and he's numbered the hairs on your head and we go, that's cute, but I don't know what that means. Pastor Nick has twin girls. Nick and Allie have twin girls. Riley and Maddie, you may have seen them scurrying about. These, these children are at one spot incredible and glorious and wonderful and another spot um, they have had to deal with their entire life being confused and called the wrong name. So I can't imagine the frustration of walking into a room and being called the wrong name like every day. We were talking about it the other day, and, and Nick says, I never get him wrong. Yeah, they're identical, and yeah, you know, I live with them. And there, there was a time, we still have family members that mix it up sometimes, but no, I never get it wrong. I said, how do you never get it wrong? And he leans in, and he says, you know, Riley has this spot behind her ear, just a little spot. He goes, but I know it's her. I know her inside and out. I know her upside down and backwards. I know her that the spot that none of us in the room who've met these two precious children, none of us have ever even noticed it. He knows right where it is and he knows where to find it and pull this ear back and see that right there and I know exactly who you are. I know you at your most intricate and intimate detail. And so Nick and Allie never call their kids the wrong name. Yes, they recognize them by face, but 
are. I know you. You're precious to me. You're not one of two. You're one. And each of us on some level feels like we're, we're just one of a mass. We're one of seven billion. We're just, God can't really care about me at that level. And what Jesus is saying when he says, God knows the hairs on your head, he's numbered them. It's what he's saying is he knows you like a father knows his child. He knows you like Nick and Allie know Riley where they go, we know you. We know who you are inside and out. And so while the world may confuse you or combine you or just forget about you entirely, in my house you're known. And I said, that's an incredible beautiful little nugget from their household and I'm stealing it because it's perfect for what we're talking about today. God looks at you that way. God knows where your little birthmark is. God knows what's behind your ear. God knows what's inside your head. God knows what is in your soul. God knows you, created you, loves you, knows you inside and out, and still wanted to give up his life for you on the cross. Knows you inside and out and said, still, you are worth my life. And so the antidote to pride and puffery and the secret sin that we live with, the antidote is not trying harder. It's looking up and realizing that God loves you so much and just wants to know you more. And he says, come back to me. Realize that I see you. You don't have to strive. Realize that I love you. You don't have to seek out applause. Realize that I love you right where you are. And with that confidence and joy, we can then take on the life he has designed for us. We can leave behind the search for approval and applause, and we can walk away from the pride and the puffery that the world seems to tell us is going to make us feel more significant or important. And instead, we focus on what is true and what is real. Or to pull an early illustration forward, we get to walk with Jesus and have him ask us, hey, what's delicious today? What in this world do we want to go do today? What is the delicious thing we get to go and participate in? Who's the people we get to love and grace? Where do we get to overflow in the life of another? Not so the world can see, but just what's good. And let's be about what's good together. Because what Jesus would tell us over and over is it's always about the heart. So my prayer is that your heart would be full today with the knowledge that the Heavenly Father sees you as his precious, unique, and unamazingly, uncomprehendingly loved child in the way that I don't have words to say it. You are so beyond loved. My prayer is that you feel it. So let's pray together. Father, my prayer is simple. Let us feel your love. Deal with the distractions and all the things that compete for our attention Father, remove all the hurdles that keep us from, from leaning into you and knowing that above all things you love us, that you know us, our flaws and our faults, you know our warts, and you love us. In our weakest moments, that you love us. In our greatest triumphs, you love us. Father, we are a people that are desperate for love. So instead of looking for it in all the wrong places, Lord, I pray that we would have hearts that are attuned to you, that you would draw us in close, and that we would experience your love in a new way today, that we might not only know it, but share it with those we know. Thank you for your son, for his sacrifice, and the salvation that comes with it. We lift this up in Jesus' name. Amen. Hi again. 
Just a reminder to let us know that you're listening by heading over to bgcovenant.org connect. If you're ready to be known, we'd love to know you. And we hope you'll join us soon for our live Sunday service at 9.30, 11 a.m. or 11 a.m. online. Thanks for listening.